This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's two Japanese fairy tales. You'll see that supporting ocean wildlife conservation will end in tragedy for you and everyone you've ever loved. Also, you'll see how an obsession with cat pictures will do more for you than just get you in trouble at work. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a naked, hairy little man who just wants to help you move as long as you don't criticize him or tell him to put on clothes. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 11, Key Details. This is a podcast where I tell stories that have shaped cultures throughout history. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. Today, I'll be telling two Japanese fairy tales. These are folk tales that have traveled down through generations, and as with any fairy tale, the dates and historical context really don't matter that much, so there's not much in the way of an introduction. The first story is a famous one, though I personally hadn't heard it before. It's the story of a kind-hearted fisherman who rescues a turtle. Urashima Taro lived long, long ago. Like I said, the date is fairly irrelevant. Though this one includes tobacco, which was introduced into Japan by Portuguese sailors in 1542, that's likely an addition on the part of one of the later writers, because this story dates back to the 9th century AD. Regardless, like I said, it doesn't really matter. Just think of it as medieval or early modern Japan. Also, for those of you that speak Japanese, I know, my pronunciation is going to be rough. I've researched and practiced the names, but it's still not going to sound like a native speaker. Anyway, Yorashimo is a young fisherman in the province of Tango, in a fishing village. Though he's only a young man, he's twice the fisherman his father was in his prime. He lives with his aging father and mother in town, and he goes out each day to fish. Other than his fishing skills, he's known for his kind heart because he does not torture animals. It seems like an odd thing to focus on, as, for me, not enjoying torturing animals is sort of a baseline for human decency. To his credit, if he didn't need to fish for a living, he said he would fish with a straight hook to only catch the fishes who wished to be caught. If you can't tell, he's an adorably good guy. Anyway, he's coming home one day, and he sees a group of children gathered around in a circle, yelling with excitement, hitting something, and laughing. Hiroshima runs up to see what's going on, and sees the kids torturing a turtle. It's one of those larger, older turtles, and they're pulling its legs this way and that. One is hitting it with a stick, and the other is hammering its shell with a rock. He pleads with them that they're going to kill this thing if they continue. Really, can't you find anything better to do? They say, look around. This is a rural Japanese village in the Middle Ages. No, there isn't anything better to do, especially if you're a child. There's literally nothing else going on. Let us torture this helpless creature in peace. But really, they say that they don't care if it dies. They're having fun. Leave them alone. They start to beat it even more cruelly, and Yurashima knows he must do something. He asks them for the turtle, and they laugh. Nope, they won't give it up. Yurashima brings out a handful of coins. How about I pay you to give it up? It's said that the kids come around to Yurashima's way of thinking, and his kind heart but they can't have come around that much since they still demand payment for the turtle. They hand the scared creature to the fisherman and count the coins on the way back to the town. Hiroshima strokes the turtle and talks to it as he takes it back to the water. It's said that a stork lives for a thousand years and a turtle for ten thousand, so this creature's life was almost cut drastically short. 
He releases it and watches the rattled, scared turtle swim off into the soft twilight. The next morning, he goes out on his boat. The sun was bright, but the air was cool. He sat in his boat, inexplicably happy. He rowed out past the other fishermen into the dark blue waters. He didn't know why he was out that far. He just wanted to be out there. He couldn't take his mind off the turtle the other day, and of its long life. He wished that he had 10,000 years to live, but he was happy to enjoy this moment. He decided to sit back and take a smoke. He almost drops his pipe when he hears his name from behind him. He spins around, but there are no other boats in view. He's completely alone. He searches all around him, but he couldn't see where the voice came from. He sat back down, and it was then that he noticed a turtle had made its way to the side of the boat. He could see, somehow, that it was the tortoise that he saved the other day. Hello, he said to the creature. Was it you that called my name? Not at all surprised that the turtle nodded, and even less surprised that it talks, he listens to the turtle thank him, and say that the turtle came to tell him how grateful it was. He invites the turtle up in the boat, picks it up, and they have a conversation. He said that he would offer it a smoke, but it probably doesn't smoke on account of being a sea creature, which I guess was a joke, because the turtle laughs and says, no, you're right, I actually prefer sake, which is a rice wine if you don't know. The turtle's sitting on the boat, signing itself, and they chat. The turtle eventually asks if Yorishima has heard of the Dragon King's realm under the sea. No? You say humans don't go to the bottom of the ocean on a regular basis? Hmm. You should really see the realm of the Sea King. You know what? We should go to the realm of the Sea King right now. Yorishima says that would be nice, but he can't swim as well as a fish. With regard to the travel problem, the turtle climbs back into the water, and Yorishima goes in after it, and finds that the turtle has grown enough for him to cling to its shell and ride it. He does, and they dive into the dark blue ocean. In some stories, he gets a magic pill that allows him to breathe underwater, but I'm just going to go with it being the turtle's magic. Really though, he's riding to the bottom of the ocean to visit the palace of the Sea King on the back of a giant talking turtle who likes sake. Let's worry about all those things before asking how he breathes underwater. They travel for hours, but Yorashima doesn't grow tired or get wet at all. They eventually come to the gates of the Sea King. Now, like the Little Mermaid, this is described in great detail, and I'm not really going to go into all that, but I'll post the story on the website if you really want to know what the flowers were in the gardens, or what species of fish make up the Sea King's attendants. Yorashima was a welcome guest, as a person from the faraway kingdom of Japan, and the rescuer of the turtle the day before. He, a humble fisherman, doesn't understand the rules of the royal court, but he is smart and picks them up quickly. He comes to the inner palace and sees the daughter of the Sea King. He's struck by her beauty, and though she has her hair up in a fashion of those hundreds of years ago, he's in awe of her. He tries to bow, but she stops him. She reveals that she was the turtle that he saved yesterday. She would like him to live forever in her father's kingdom, the land of eternal youth where summer never ends. She will even be his bride, and he the prince and eventual king. He, feeling as if he's dreaming and overwhelmed by everything that's around him, forgets his home, and he says yes. This is the most magnificent place he's ever been. He would love to stay here and be with her. Apparently when she asked him to marry her, she meant right now. And a train of fishes swim in, dressed in ceremonial, trailing garments, in what sounds like an adorable wedding procession. They're married, and they sit down to a wondrous feast. 
After the feast, she shows him through the palace, which is crafted out of corals and pearls, and he's really interested in the gardens, which somehow contain butterflies and nightingales, despite those kind of needing air to live. Let's just chalk this up to magic, too, since he sees bamboo trees, plums, and snow-capped mountains in the distance. If you're wondering why I'm not taking this story to task like I did The Little Mermaid, well, one, I hope you'll agree that when we get to the end that it's a much better story. And two, it seems like The Little Mermaid was trying to convince us that it was in a real ocean setting, while this one just hand waves everything and attributes it to magic. Anyway, he spends three days enraptured in the beauty that surrounds him in the realm of the Sea King, before he remembers, wait, I've been gone for three days. I should go back and tell my parents I wasn't lost at sea. They were quite old, and he was worried what the stress of him not coming home might do to them. He had to get back. He told this to his new wife, and while she pleaded with him, she couldn't convince him to stay. She relented and called for a turtle who would take him up. He promised that he would be back in a day, just after he told his family where he was and what happened to him. She called for something and gives him a box as a token of her love. It's a small, lacquered wooden box, tied with a silken cord. She says that the box contains something very precious. He must keep it on him at all times when he's up above the ocean, but he must never open it. If he does, something dreadful will happen to him. Really, please don't open it. He vowed never to do it, and they embraced. He got on the top of the large turtle and rode off. He waved goodbye to his new wife and his new kingdom, and he was eager to tell his family the good news and more eager to return. Before long, he was out of sight of even the Sea King's magnificent palace. Hours passed, and eventually he comes to the bay he left from. He bids goodbye to the tortoise, who submerges and goes back to the kingdom. He turns around and walks toward town. He's gripped with a strange foreboding, though. Something's off. He recognizes the shore and the hills and landmarks, but when he passes people, they stare at him, look at his clothes, and chuckle. He looks down. He was wearing the same clothes as he was when he left. They're the ones wearing strange clothes. Come to think of it, everyone is wearing strange clothes. And why doesn't he see anyone he knows? He's lived in this town his whole life, yet all he sees are strangers. He starts to feel anxious. Something is very wrong. The streets are all off, too. But eventually he finds his house. But not his house. No, it's in the same spot, but... It looks different, too. Definitely not the house he grew up in. He walks up to the door, yelling for his father that he's returned, when a man he didn't know came out. Maybe his parents moved when he was gone? And someone constructed a whole new house? He tells the man that he's Yurashi Mataro, and until a few days ago, he lived there. Where have his parents gone? The man's jaw dropped. Yurashi Mataro? He said. Yes, Yurashima said. That's me. Where are my parents? The man cracks up laughing. He tells Hiroshima he shouldn't make such jokes. Jokes? Yeah, saying he was Hiroshima Taro of the old legend. There was a man by that name, but he disappeared, what, 300 years ago? Panic began to creep up on Hiroshima. He said that the man was being ridiculous. He really was the fisherman, but he had only been gone for four or five days tops. Stop joking, he said. Tell me where my parents are. The man's face became grave. He says that Yurashima may or may not be the man he says he is, but the only Yurashima Taro he knew disappeared 300 years ago. He says that maybe Yurashima is a spirit come to visit his old home, 
something the new homeowner is apparently surprisingly cool with. Yorashima begins yelling and stomping and showing his feet. Does he look like a spirit to this man? The homeowner backs away and into his house. Don't believe me? Then go look in the village chronicles. The story of Yorashima is written there. He shuts the door. Overcome, Yorashima runs off back towards town. He comes to a pond that he had been to when he was a child. A few months ago, or a few months before he left, he's not quite sure anymore, he remembered planting a little willow slip there. But in its place now stood a massive tree. This, this can't be. He ran into town. The chronicle confirmed what the man had said. It said that Yarashima Taro disappeared on the day that he had left fishing with the turtle. He found that he had become something of a legend, that he was such a good fisherman that he apparently hooked a whale and refused to let it go, and the whale, to this day, still pulls him across the sea. Nonsense. All nonsense. But it did confirm the story. It made sense now, why he didn't recognize anything, or anyone. For every one day he spent in the Sea Kingdom, a hundred years had passed. He had been there for three days, so now everyone he knew, including his mother and father, were long dead and forgotten. Yorashima walked around in despair. There was nothing for him here now. At least he still had his beautiful wife beyond the sea. He had to return to her. He looked up, and he had wandered to the coast, only he didn't recognize it. He had no idea how long he had walked, or how far he was from the little bay where he would meet the turtle. What if he didn't make it back in time? What if the turtle came to the beach and he wasn't there? Would the turtle wait? Hiroshima had to get back, but he was lost in this strange, familiar place. He walked, and hours passed, and still, nothing looked familiar. He began to panic. Then he remembered the box the princess had given him. Surely whatever she had given him would help. Surely it would show the way back to her. He remembered that she said never to open it, but he felt hopeless. Everyone he knew was dead, and now he would miss the boat, or turtle, back to the only home he had left. He resolves to open the box. He slowly unties the silk and cracks it open, peeking inside. He opens it fully. It's empty, except for a purple cloud, which comes out in three wisps, clouding his vision and covering his face. They linger for a moment before traveling out and dissipating over the ocean. Hiroshima felt strange. He was tired, impossibly tired, and sore. Every part of him hurt, and he suddenly found that he couldn't support his weight. His back became stooped and hunched, and he looked at his hands. They were withered and spotted and wrinkled, and continued to shrivel. If he could see his face, he would notice his youth evaporating. His teeth came out in his mouth, and he saw his hair come down before his eyes. White. He felt his face sag with wrinkles. What the princess had given him in the box was the 300 years of aging she had protected him from. While the box remained closed, he would forever remain 24. But as soon as he opened it, centuries of aging returned to him. He was tired. So tired. He collapsed on the beach, a withered old man, and died. When the tide came into this deserted section of the beach, it carried the sparse remains of Hiroshima Taro back to the only home he had left, the sea. This is, admittedly, the saddest of the endings. Some endings have the incredibly aged Hiroshima looking out on the ocean, 
having opened the box just as his wife showed up to take him back. He lives, but he's very old and can't go back with her, and she laments this as she swims away. Happier endings have him aging, but finding a stork feather in the box. Upon touching it, he turns into the bird and flies off. Of course, he can never return to the undersea kingdom or to the world of the humans, but for those of you paying attention in the beginning, he'll still live for a thousand years as a stork, and that's a fairly decent consolation prize. To me, the ending with him dying from 300 years of aging not only made the most sense, but was in most of the versions I could find. The next story is called simply, The Boy Who Drew Cats. The boy's parents were fretting as he was talking to the priest. Of their many children, he was the smallest, the weakest, and the smartest. Still, was he smart enough to become an acolyte? The interview was short, but it was as long as it needed to be. The priest was impressed by the young boy's quick, laconic responses. He agreed to take the boy on and train him up in the priesthood. The boy's parents were sad to leave him, but happy that he wouldn't have the toil-filled life that his siblings would have, as they were forced to start working on the family farm, sometimes as soon as they could walk. Weeks later, the priest was happy with his new acolyte. The boy was quick study and seemed born to be a pri- Wait, what was all this? The priest flipped through the book. The book was hundreds of years old and someone had drawn... What are those? Cats? Yeah, cats. All over it. In the margins, over the words, everywhere. There was even a cartoon one on the back cover. He snatched up the book and went to talk to the boy. He looked around and noticed something about the boy's chamber. There were cat drawings. Everywhere. On the walls, on the table, and on his study materials. I need to talk to you about the drawings in this book, the priest said. I didn't do it, the boy replied. Really, the priest said. Look at your room. Look at the furniture. You definitely did it. You're drawing a cat right now while we're talking, he said, pointing to the boy's hand, barely hidden under a book. Eventually he admitted to doing it, apologized, and said he would clean them up. The priest, though stern, was understanding. He told the boy to clean his chamber and... Seriously, stop drawing on the old books. He stopped by the next morning to see that his order was carried out, and was happy to see the boy preparing for the day. The cats scrubbed from every surface. Days later, the priest was in the temple when he saw something on the ground near one of the corners. He crouched down and saw an extraordinarily fat cat painted in the corner. Seriously? Walking through the temple to confront the boy, he began to see tiny cats everywhere, on the pillars, on the spines of the books, everywhere. He stormed into the boy's chamber and was surprised to see that it was clean. His eyes darted around. They had to be somewhere. And then he spotted it, a black smudge just in view by the table. He pushed past the boy and pulled the table back. It was a whole string of cats. Small cats, skinny cats, realistic cats, cartoon cats, painted in the area the table would hide. He pulled back the boy's bed. More cats. This was a problem. He chastised the boy, and again the boy said he would stop. The final straw came when the old priest was passing a beautifully painted screen. The priest didn't know why, but he was drawn to the landscape. The beautiful mountains in the background, the gentle stream flowing by the grass in the field, the group of cats playing in the field. Wait, what? He took a few steps to go find the young boy, but came back. The priest had to admire that the boy was getting good. The cats really looked like they belonged on this professionally painted screen. The boy did a really good job. Still, this couldn't continue. Minutes later, he sat the boy down. 
Look, you're smart, but it's obvious this whole priesthood thing isn't for you. You have real cat-related artistic talent, and since you really can't seem to help yourself and draw cats everywhere, I think you should pursue that, the priest said. The boy made it clear that he really wanted to be an acolyte. He comes from a family of farmers. Whatever talent he had for books or art would be wasted if he went back home. He begged the priest to let him stay, but the priest refused, saying he expected the boy to leave at sunrise the next day. As he was leaving the chamber, he turned to the young boy, who was already packing up all his possessions into a small bundle. The priest had a feeling he couldn't quite describe, and blurted something out to the boy. He said, Avoid large places at night. Keep to small. The boy looked at him with his head cocked to the side, and the priest, not knowing why he said that, nodded as if he meant to, made a stern face, and walked off. The next morning the boy left before sunrise. He had a plan. He had already made it into one temple as an acolyte, and he couldn't go home. Twelve miles down the road was a temple with many priests. He was smart. He could convince one of them to take him in. He made his way toward that town. Taking his time on the walk, the boy came to the town well into night, after the people had gone to bed. He looked in the distance and saw the temple. Someone had left a light burning for visitors in the entryway. He stood before the door and knocked, expecting an acolyte to rush and open it and aid a traveler, even at this late hour. He knocked and knocked, but no one came. Finally, he pushed at the door, and it moved. As it turns out, it wasn't even barred on the other side. In the moonlight, dust flew away from the door as the boy opened it. The place was dirty for a temple. Some acolyte wasn't doing his job. At least they left a lamp burning on the stone floor. The boy thought about seeking out a priest and introducing himself, but he decided it would be best if he stayed in the entryway until morning, not wanting to intrude on the priests or acolytes. He looked around at the cobwebs on the ceiling. They needed an acolyte. I mean, look at this drawing set someone just left on the floor, and the books scattered throughout. This place is a mess. He looked at the calligraphy set, and the fairly dusty white screen in front of him, and the supplies to make ink. The boy thought about the screen, the supplies, and the ink, and that he did need to pass the time until morning. Maybe he would just draw a few. After he had covered the screen with cats, he moved to the walls and the pillars, completely not understanding what got him kicked out of the last temple. The whole time, though, he thought he saw a priest, or someone, on the edge of the darkness, in the flickers of the lamp. But each time he looked, he saw nothing. Every time he stopped and listened, only silence filled the room. Finally, sleep crept up on him after a long day of travel and he began to make a bed for himself in the center of the room with his meager supplies. As he was laying down, for some reason, he remembered the last thing the priest had said to him. Avoid large places at night. Keep to small. It sent a chill up his spine, and he looked around. The temple was a large place. He realized how alone he was in the darkness. Up here, far from the town. Then, quietly, a realization crept up on him. The dust, the cobwebs, the supplies, and books strewn about the entryway. This place wasn't messy. It had been abandoned. And in a hurry, there were no priests here, no acolytes, 
They would never leave a temple in such shape if they could help it. It would be a disgrace. That's why the door wasn't barred. He gasped. He could feel his pulse pounding in his neck as he slowly turned his head. Whoever, whatever had chased the priests out, it could still be here. And then he remembered. The burning lamp. Someone had left it out. Thoughts raced through his head. The lamp wasn't a welcome at all. It was bait. Whoever left it out wanted him to come in, to feel welcome, to fall asleep. He could feel the shadows pressing in on the flickers from the lamp. He felt like he had to hide. He had to find a small place. He saw some cabinets at the corner of the room and rushed to them. It was dark and dusty, but after he killed the spider creeping up his leg, he was alone. He was cramped and uncomfortable. Minutes passed, and then an hour. He was crammed, wide-eyed, into a cabinet, and he sighed. His fears had obviously been unfounded. There was nothing in the temple. He moved his hand to open the cabinet door, but froze. He heard a sound, so far off in the temple. It got closer and closer. He didn't move. Then he heard footsteps pad into the room. The thing, whatever, whoever it was, was breathing. It was frenzied. He heard the sounds of its mouth overflowing with saliva. It was licking its lips. Then the sound of the glass and the metal of the lantern crunch. What little light was coming in through the gaps of the cabinet was gone. He held his breath. It might not know he was in there. He tried not to make a sound. It didn't matter, though, because at that moment, he heard a horrible shrieking and breaking and tearing and screaming. Then silence. The boy was shaking, and he barely dared to breathe. He didn't know if the thing was gone, but he didn't want to risk taking a look. He waited, and silence pervaded the whole place. He didn't know if the thing was there. It could be sitting just in the darkness, waiting for him to appear. He didn't want to risk moving. He didn't move until, through the slivers in the cabinet, the faintest of the morning light came through. Maybe it would be safe now. He opened the cabinet door. He didn't know how wedged in there he had been, though, and he fell out. Catching himself with his hands, he felt something. The ground was... sticky. He froze, but he didn't hear anything coming for him. He looked at his hands. They were covered in blood. He stood up and stepped back in horror. The floor was covered in blood. He slowly looked up to the center of the room and saw a torn mass laying there, two times the size of a man. He looked at the doorways deeper into the temple, but they were still dark and dusty, and the door to the outside was closed from when he had done it the previous night. He walked to the center of the room. He saw it. It was a large, sinister-looking rat-like creature, torn open and eviscerated, with scraps of its hair all around the room. It was hideous, and even dead and in pieces on the floor, it was still something out of a nightmare. But what had killed it? The sun had come up more, and now that the morning was here, it was obvious he was now alone in the temple. Then, in the light of the morning, he saw it. All around the room, on the walls and on the screens, were the cat drawings from the night before, except they weren't what he had drawn. He felt shivers as he saw them. It's like they were staring at him. All around the room, the cats were smiling. And dripping off all the fangs and faces on all the drawings 
was blood. As it turns out, the priests and acolytes have been driven out of the large temple by a goblin, a massive, rat-like monster. The priests escaped with their lives and whatever they could hold in their hands, but the warriors that went in after the creature were not so lucky. None of them came out alive. The abandoned temple loomed over the town, and the creature would leave a single lantern flickering in the entryway to lure unwary travelers in so he could devour them. The boy ended up becoming a famous artist, and I like to imagine that, in his bedroom, he could sleep soundly, surrounded by his drawings of cats. That's it for the stories this week. I couldn't say this at the top of the show, but I love how these stories start in one place and then quietly move to a different type of story. With Hiroshima in the beginning, it started out as the prototypical fairy tale, with a poor fisherman becoming a prince. But it ended in a very dark place, with his past very literally catching up with him. With the boy who drew cats, it started out as this odd, humorous tale of a boy with a bizarre little compulsion, and it ended as a horror story. These stories are complex and interesting, and take whatever expectation you had for them at the outset and turn it on its head, and in doing so are actually able to surprise us. They do what modern stories have a difficult time doing, and they do such a great job at it that it's kind of hard to believe that they're hundreds of years old. Next week on the podcast, it's another one-time episode, but this one is so bizarre. It's part fairy tale, part scientific curiosity, and part cautionary tale of people willfully deceiving the public with misinformation. It's the story of the pig-faced ladies. I want to thank Zero Cove Zero, or Okovio, I'm not sure, Pete Pizorski, Ari Angler, Anonymous, Arkham409, and Andy B for the reviews. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is probably the best place, and you can find the show on there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. So before the Creature of the Week, I just wanted to let everyone know that I launched a Patreon page. If you don't know, Patreon is a crowdfunding site where you'll be able to pledge as much or as little as you want towards the podcast each month. If you're looking for a way to support the show beyond a review, tweet, or kind word, this would be a really great way to do so. Anything pledged over there would go towards making a deeper, more interesting podcast. If you pledge just $5 a month toward the show, it would not only show your appreciation, but you would get an additional members-only podcast each month, looking at one or more interesting, crazy, or ridiculous fairy tales from around the world. I'm calling it Fairy Tale Friday, just because I like alliteration. The first Fairy Tale Friday episode will come out this Friday, October 30th, 2015. This wouldn't replace a normal show, so no worries there. If you like what you hear each week, this is a great way to contribute to the quality of the show. If you're interested in helping to support the show and or want an additional bit of folklore each month, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Phenodri of Manx folklore. For those of you that don't know, which included me a little while ago, Manx refers to the Isle of Man, an island in the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Ireland. I guess it's not technically part of the United Kingdom, but it's its own self-governing dependency. Not that any of that actually matters for today, but it's a nice little geography lesson. Now, the Phenodri is either one creature or a whole race of them. Regardless, he's always hairy, always naked, and usually pretty helpful. Also, he's very small, but super strong. The legend of the Phenodri is such that he once lived in Fairyland, but he was banished. He was banished for abandoning his duties on the fairy court during the harvest moon to go dance with a pretty Manx lady he had come to fancy. 
As such, he was cast out and doomed to live on the Isle of Man until the end of time. Part of his punishment was that he was covered in long, shaggy hair like a goat, and it was from that point on that he was called the Frenodri, meaning hairy one. I love how literally named some of these creatures are. I can imagine the conversation. What are we going to name that creature we think we saw last night? Well, I don't know. He's a hairy one. I... Oh, perfect. There we go. Let's just name him that. He's actually pretty helpful, as long as you aren't too picky about how he helps you or try to get him to cover up his nakedness. One story has him mowing a lawn for a man to protect his grass, and the man comes up to the little, hairy, naked Venodri, not at all cognizant of the fact that his lawn had just been mowed for free by a little supernatural creature, and he tells the Fenodri that he actually didn't do that good of a job. He could have gotten it a little shorter. To which the creature says the man can mow his own lawn next time, thank you very much, scowling at him. The next time the lawn needs mowed, the man is out there with his scythe when he sees the Fenodri following close behind him, his intense little eyes staring out through the hair. He's being helpful again. This time he's with a blade, cutting roots he sees in the field behind the man mowing. The only problem? He's way more efficient than the mower, and several times he almost takes the mower's legs off. The mower is terrified of the thing, and for several years he doesn't mow the grass, until a brave soldier outwits the Fenodri and successfully completes the job. There's another story where the man wanted to build a house on top of a hill, and he had large blocks of it sitting there, and all the teams he had paid to do the job couldn't get it up the hill. Well, he wakes up the next day and sees the marble up by where he was going to build the house. Despite not seeing the creature, he somehow knew it was the Fenodri, and he laid out some clothes for him as a gesture of thanks. The Fenodri came, picked up the items, and tossed them back down. He said clothes were nothing but a discomfort, and forever left that part of the island. So as you can see, if a little hairy naked man shows up wanting to help you move, watch what you say, or you might lose your free fairy labor. Or maybe do say something, because while he may be helpful, he's still a hairy, naked stranger hanging around your house who might cut your legs off. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by the unflinching Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.